past several weeks, we've been teaching through a book called Think Biblically, which is a collection of writings uh, from contributors at the Master's College and edited by John MacArthur. Uh, These writings present a variety of topics from a biblical worldview, such as postmodernism, biblical counseling versus psychology, and a scriptural view of science. As we talk about worldview, uh, let's take a few minutes to, uh, to discuss what we mean. What's a worldview? Well, a worldview comprises a collection of presuppositions, convictions, and values from which a person tries to understand and make sense out of the world and life. A worldview is a conceptual scheme by which we consciously and unconsciously place or fit everything we believe and by which we interpret and judge reality. A worldview, first of all, is an explanation and interpretation of the world, and secondly, an application to the view of this view to life. It's a worldview. And so what is a Christian worldview? Uh, the following definition is offered as a working model, a Christian worldview. I mean, I think a biblical worldview or a Christian worldview um, is uh, it sees and understands God the creator and his creation, i.e. man in the world, primarily through the lens of God's special revelation, the Holy Scriptures, and secondarily through God's natural revelation in creation as interpreted by human reason and reconciled by and with Scripture for the purpose of believing and behaving in accordance with God's will and thereby glorifying God with one's mind and life, both now and in eternity. That's a Christian worldview. With that in mind, this morning we're going to be discussing a biblical view to economics. Uh, This chapter was written by R.W. Mackey, and most of the information presented this morning comes from Mackey's writings. I'm sure you didn't wake up this Sunday morning thinking, I can't wait to go to church and discuss economics. Uh, You may not even know what economics is. But don't worry, we're not here to talk about the stock market, the unemployment rate, or what the Federal Reserve did at their last meeting. We're going to discuss a proper understanding of economics from a biblical worldview, and it's applicable to everyone in this room and will impact not only how you view economics, um, but the decisions you make on a daily basis. The Bible is not an economic textbook, and as um, as such, it certainly informs the economic components of a worldview. Over 700 passages of Scripture address the concept of wealth. Christ spoke on wealth management, more than he spoke on heaven or hell, causing one to ask, why would the Savior place such great emphasis on what seems at first blush to be rather mundane, temporal-focused topic? The answer to this question centers on the focus of redemption, the human heart. Christ told his followers directly, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, or where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And neither moth nor rust destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart is also. And as we talk this morning, the concept of sin, economics, and redemption will be a consistent theme. So what is economics? Uh, Webster's Dictionary defines economics as a social science concerned chiefly uh, with description and analysis of the production, distribution, and consumption cycles of goods and services. Well, Mackey provides a less technical but um, biblically founded explanation of economics, and it's essentially the study of the study of economics is a study of a hum, of human problems that are rooted in scarcity. In the study of economics, this is a key issue: this issue of scarcity. Since not enough goods or services exist to satisfy all human wants, the need for allocation 
with its attendant problems arise. How one behaves when solving these allocation problems is a significant theme in God's word. Although the Bible does not offer formulas for investment strategies or specific rules for accounting practices, the moral guidelines derived from the holy nature of God revealed in Scripture give clear and comprehensive guidance for economic decisions. In God's word, we learn about three things. The origin of economics. Secondly, the economics of redemption. And finally, the responsibility of stewardship. These are three main areas that we're going to be discussing relating to economics this morning. The origin of economics. When did the concept of economics begin? Some say uh, the state of modern economics, uh, thought to be originated in a short book penned by Thomas Robert Malthus, Malthus, and he was a British clergyman. In his work, an essay on the principles and population as it affects the future improvement of society from 1798. Malthus observed that sooner or later, population growth is checked by famine or disease, leading, leading to what's known as the Malthasian catastrophe. He wrote, uh, he wrote in opposition to popular views in the 18th century of Europe that saw society as improving and the principles as being perfectible, so that the society was, was moving toward perfectionism. He thought the dangers of population growth precluded progress towards a utopian society. He predicted human population growth would be approximately 3% annually and would double the Earth's inhabitants roughly every 25 years. And based on those numbers, he believed that the Earth's agricultural resources would be unable to sustain the population growth, eventually resulting in hungry people killing each other for food. The Malstranian scenario was gloomy indeed, causing economics to be dubbed the dismal science. And that nickname persists even today. So Malthus did get some things right. The Earth's population did double about every 25 years. But he failed, he failed to factor in human advances into the equation, advancing in farming techniques and technologies that have led to record crop production, in fact, in some places in the U.S., farmers are paid by the government not to, not to plant crops in order to control pricing. But most importantly, Mathis did identify the very foundation of economics, and that is scarcity. He knew that food was scarce. It's a scarce commodity, and it exists in finite amounts. Mackey adds this example. Scarcity explains why diamonds are more expensive than air. Air is certainly more important than diamonds, but diamonds are more expensive because they exist in significantly smaller amounts. Air would would suddenly garner an exorbitant price if there were not enough available for all. No doubt, people would gladly surrender diamonds for air to breathe. Without the reality of scarcity, economics is not only irrelevant, but non-existent. Economics is simply defined as the explanation of how scarce resources are allocated amongst competing ends. In other words, since most goods or services are in shorter supply than desired, some method of allocation must be employed. Allocation is the subject of economics, and the occasion for allocation is caused by scarcity. If an item exists in abundance, as air does, then allocation becomes a moot point. If an item exists in relative scarcity, as diamonds do, then guards must be hired and prices set to ensure allocation occurs as intended. If an economic system performs well, it produces efficiency. 
this efficiency is the byproduct of balancing the factors of production in such a way that they complement each other. Uh, Balance is also realized in the environment as a whole by providing adequate and purposeful work for people within their God-given roles in a constant fashion. A balanced economy produces jobs for all those seeking and able to work. Malthus may have been the one of the first peoples to write about economics and evenly accurately identify scarcity of resources as the main source of economics, but he did not identify the source or continuation of that scarcity. Answers to these questions actually predate Malthus and are found in Scripture. So when did the human race first experience scarcity? And why does scarcity continue today? Why do economic systems now need to deal with competition and imbalance? The answer to these questions are found in Genesis 1 through 3. At least three factors are apparent, and they have great importance in economic thinking. These three are abundance, cooperation, and balance. Abundance. The account of creation is initially an account of abundance. An ample amount was made available by God for the earth's human inhabitants. God told Adam, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed, and it is on the face of and it is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. Genesis one twenty nine. This statement occurred after God made the earth habitable for plants, animals, and humans, through introducing life sustaining ingredients like land and water, atmosphere, light and heat, and seasons. All Adam and Eve needed to live was available for their gathering. Plenty characterized initial creation. There was no scarcity, nor by definition economics, because there was plenty. Cooperation. Not only did abundance characterize initial creation, but cooperation was present as well. Initially, Adam was created to complement his creator, to subdue, multiply, and cultivate the created realm. And with regards to the creation of Eve, Scripture states, it is not good that man should be alone, I will make a helper fit for him. Eve's God-given role was not to compete with Adam, but rather to complement him in the cultivation of the garden. As Adam's complement, Eve accepted his household leadership, worked with him to help, help him to accomplish his mandate spoken by God. She was designed for this role by God and assumed this role for a time. This complementary role activity was true cooperation in fulfillment of God-ordained roles within creation. Competition was not an issue at this point in human history for two reasons. Since the earth's resources were abundant, plenty existed for everyone, there was no reason to compete. And second, since Adam and Eve's motives were pure, they cooperated perfectly, each performed within their roles as God had designed for him and her. Looking back at Genesis 1 through 3, we see the abundance of God's creation, the cooperation of God's design, and finally, the perfect balance of God's design. Abundance and cooperation existed in the environment of balance. The physical conditions of the earth were in balance. Darkness and light, land and water, plants and animals, humans and animals, man and woman. This garden, masterfully created by a wonderful father, was the model of order, and in that sense, capable of finite existence. Genesis 3.22. Adam and Eve did not need to ever listen to an economics lecture or an examination over the laws of supply and demand. 
There was plenty, and it was in balance. However, all of this changed. Economic considerations began with the events recorded in Genesis 3. That chapter describes how sin entered the world and the accompanying result of falling away from God. The conditions of abundance, cooperation, and balance were dramatically marred by the fall. Satan approached Eve in the garden and began a process of rationalization with her. His approach culminated in a statement to her that epitomizes the essence of sin, its pride. <clears throat> Satan said, you will be like God. Well, prior to this encounter, Adam and Eve had not inspired to be like God. But they were enjoying the benefits of trusting in the wisdom of goodness of their creator. God's goodness in creation was theirs to superintend. Now God's way was called into question and seemed that Adam and Eve, as, as though a better way had been identified, since they were not like God, they lacked the foreknowledge to surmise the outcome of eating the fruit. One outcome of the sin was the advent of scarcity. God said to Adam, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and you have eaten of the tree of which I command you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat, eat of all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you, and you shall eat the plants, and you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face, and you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. Genesis three seventeen through nineteen. The account of the fall. Abundance became scarcity due to the introduction of thorns and thistles. Good things became difficult to cultivate while potentially productive things left to themselves deteriorated. Life became a struggle with the circumstances that were set in motion by sin. Scarcity pandered with sweat. Getting and keeping enough devolved into an anxious endeavor. It was no longer plenty. As a former professor of Los Angeles Baptist College, Dr. Herbert Kotchkiss told his students, the fall of man moved mankind from scarcity to insecurity. Therefore, mankind would spend the rest of his days looking for food and a home. Scarcity resulted, <clears throat> scarcity resulted from and was, a, was accompanied by competition and imbalance. Adam would now compete with the earth's marred conditions, thorns and thistles, and these curses did not create equilibrium between crops and weeds, um, but initiated the dominion of harm in the creation without, without constant, intelligent human effort. Adam would also compete with his wife for household leadership since God had, had pronounced that her desire would be for her husband. No longer a cooperation, but a competition. These conditions... This only became worse as people devolved into corruption as recorded in Genesis 6. Those who possessed superior attributes dominated the less endowed people for evil purposes. That is a raw survival of the fittest scenario. And the source of this, of this corruption was a lack of parity or balance in innate abilities coupled with depravity, producing a deplorable culture, so deplorable that God wiped it off the face of the earth with a flood. These conditions of scarcity, competition, and imbalance set in motion when sin entered the world made economics a reality. This is the origin of economics, this, the fall. How individuals approached the challenges of acquisition allocation because, became a huge indicator of the extent to which the effects of the fall were being reversed through the redemptive process. 
Interestingly enough, when redemption is finally when redemption is finally culminated in the creation of the new heavens and the new earth, economics will no longer be an issue. The Apostle John wrote, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. The night will be no more. They will have no need of of light, lamp, or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever, and they will reign forever and ever. Revelation 22, 3 through 5. The the eternal existence in the new heavens and the new earth will restore the abundance, cooperation, and balance found only in humanity's proper relationship to God. Christians would expect this to be so, since the Father is totally sufficient, and life with him, therefore, will be totally free from want. Scripture speaks to three main areas of economics. That's the origin of economics, the economics of redemption, and the responsibility of stewardship. We have a firm... We now have a firm biblical understanding of the origin of economics. Now we'll take a look and see what Scripture says on the economics of redemption. Economics of redemption focuses on a believer's obedience to the word of God to address the economic impacts of sin. Abundance turning to scarcity, cooperation turning to competition, and balance turning to imbalance. With regard to scarcity, Scripture instructs us to work, save, and give. The people of God in the nation of Israel or in the church have found themselves living in a fallen world and subject to challenging economic conditions. First of all, the believer must overcome scarcity through ongoing intelligent effort. The often cited passage that extols work makes, makes the point. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in the summer and gathers her food in the harvests. Proverbs 6, 6 through 8. The ant is an example of industry, work. This example is is simple, thoughtful, planned, consistent, and self-motivated. The passage says that without the initiative, poverty will take over. The Apostle Paul extorts the Ephesians to work, writing, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his hands, so that he may have something to share to share with anyone in need. To the believers in Thessaloniki, Paul wrote, Aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands, as we instructed, so that you may, so that you may live properly before outsiders and to be dependent on no one. The biblical norm for overcoming scarcity in order to survive and to give an honest, is to give honest and consistent labor. Biblical principles are also given to outline the care of those unable to work. The scripture mandates for work is so strong that those who do not engage in work are called sluggards in the book of Proverbs. Sluggards are glued to their beds. They make poor excuses for laziness. Uh, They fail to complete tasks and are useless to those who employ them. Ultimately, the lazy individuals find their lives wasted. Paul is so opposed to laziness, he tells the Thessalonian believers how to deal with those who are, who are able to work but will not work. No work, no food. For even when we were with you, we would not give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work but busy bodies. 
Now such persons we command, encouraged in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Lazy men with families are especially chastised by Paul, and he instructs Timothy that men do not provide for their families, have denied their faith, and are worse than unbelievers. Certainly called to work. Under normal conditions, scarcity is the problem, and honest work is the solution. Many social activist believers believe that the solution to most uh, cultural ills is wealth, and they believe a sizable group of people are problem people because they lack wealth. Such individuals often promote promote programs to give away resources or resources or to find resources that have been squandered or abuse them in time. Well, Scripture teaches, however, that the problem people often lack resources because they're foolish, failing to work hard and, prop- and manage properly. The second tenet, we work, we also have savings. Scripture also teaches that a portion of what is to earn should be saved. Another visit with the ant in Proverbs 6 demonstrates that principle. The key words for this listen- lesson are summer and winter. The words demonstrate that the ants' foresight in laying aside provision when they are available in the summer against when the provisions um, are non-existent in the winter. Harvest when you can, and save when you cannot. Savings is simply preparing for future scarcity. So if work is the answer to immediate scarcity, future scarcity, the answer is, is saving. That may be brought on by predictable or unpredictable circumstances. The word somewhat is used because in a fallen world, difficult circumstances are to be expected. It is a time of the circumstance, it is only the time of the circumstance that is unknown. It will happen if we just don't know when. This would be the first thrust in Proverbs 21.20 when Solomon wrote, precious treasures are oil, Precious treasure and oil are all a wise man's dwelling, but a foolish man devours it. Savings is mentioned by Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians in reminding the Corinthians of of his relationship to them. Paul uses a tender parent-child metaphor. He tells them he will not be a burden to them because it is the responsibility of the parents to save up for their children. Although Paul does not mention the purpose of parental savings, he extols the discipline activity of setting aside resources for the future needs of offspring. And finally, giving. The third antidote for scarcity is giving. Giving relieves scarcity experienced by others, but it is not to relieve them from their commitment to work, their command to work. Jesus encouraged giving when he said, Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use it, will be measured back to you. Luke 6.38 The early church sets a pattern for weekly giving as a part of the Sunday gathering. Giving was directed to the advancement of the Lord's work, to those who who were generally in need, to the poor, to qualified widows, and to those who have devoted themselves to spiritual leadership. Those are the categories that we're called to give to specifically in Scripture. Early Christians who serve as godly examples gave generously. They gave sacrificially and joyously, lovingly and worshipfully. Giving was voluntary. 
With no obligation to the Old Testament law being mentioned, the New Testament is silent regarding the Old Testament laws pertaining to giving. If a person were to adopt the tithe from the Old Testament, it would be approximately 25%. One thing, however, remains consistent between the two Testaments, and that is that giving to God has always been a matter of the heart. The economics of redemption. With regard to competition, but how does this second economic problem, competition, find its redemptive solution? Or more specifically asked, how does the believer cooperate with God's created order? The focus of this question is upon the believer's willing cooperation with God's design. He's living within the proper role as God had designed it. The design contextualizes individual individuals within creation and therefore allows them to utilize their God-given abilities best, thereby aligning themselves with the blessings of God. Initially, Adam found himself under God's authority and Eve was placed under Adam's leadership. The remainder of creation was subject to humanity. As creation continued in this established order, abundance persisted. When the order was broken, scarcity began. Economics Economic well-being was ultimately dependent upon following God's order. God reminded the nations of Israel that following his way would result in prosperity in Deuteronomy 6. Insightfully, Hamash McRae has observed that the primary threat to prosperity in North America, prosperity in North America, is the demise of the family unit which many Christians believe has resulted from a movement away of cooperation with God's ordained structures. Since the home was the primary vehicle for value transmission within society, the familial meltdown affected every sector of the economy. Following the pattern established by God for the home, positions the family and, and consequently a society for blessings of the Lord. This is not to mean that we're all going to be rich or carefree. This is not a plug for the prosperity gospel. Nor is it about money. It is about resting in the sufficiency of the Lord. Just as the Lord disciplines those he loves when they disobey his word, he also blesses them in various aspects of their life when they live in obedience with God's word. So with regard to imbalance from balance... The restoration of balance will also, be, will also occur uh, when redemption affects eco- the restoration of balance to creation will also occur when redemption affects economics. The current human condition seems to be characterized by extremes. These extremes are promoted when individuals ar- argue for man-made systems of socialism exclusively or capitalism exclusively. Why? Because these are man-made systems, man-made designs. That's not God's order. Socialism, the proponents of socialism, assume that people will put others before themselves and will work for a common good. Goods and services will be cooperatively owned and allocated based on need with some sort of central planning that assesses the needs in advance. Now, socialists will argue that it's more, it's more noble than capitalism because socialism pre, presupposes that people are capable of selflessness goodness. The haves will take care of the have-nots if capitalism were freely involved. 
And eventually the have-nots will overthrow the haves to restore equality. Capitalism panders to the base to to the base instinct of greed. And socialism prizes compassion for the less fortunate. These are the things we hear about, especially given our time right now with the presidential election coming up. You're a lot about socialism and capitalism. Socialism prizes compassion for the less fortunate and emphasizes community over autonomous freedom. Even some Christians have cited Acts 2, 44 through 45 as a defense for uh, sanctified socialism uh, to be practiced by the church. The use of this scripture for this defense, however, doesn't work for a number of reasons. And the church in Jerusalem practiced their communal approach to giving on a one-time voluntary basis with no biblical or apostolic command preceding it. No mention of the practice as normative for churches appears in the remainder of Acts or in any of the New Testament books. So capitalism, on the other hand, in a pure form, relies solely on market forces. You have buyers and sellers to establish a regulated equilibrium price as dictated by surpluses and shortages. Supplies and demand given govern free exchange with the participants privately owning whatever they're able to, to garner through the exchange. The proponents of capitalism argue that it works best because it accounts for the depravity of man. Right? Everyone's out for their own self-interest. It allows market equilibriums to coordinate buyers and sellers without outside intervention solves the objective nature of pricing, and it allows the participants to amass a great wealth. It motivates workers because they're able to keep the fruits of their labor as they see fit, and has spawned a poor class of people that are relatively less poor than poor people in other countries operating under a socialist. And they'll point to, really, the antithesis is the collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, even Germany, as we see that socialism, communism, in that sense, has failed. What, what do we need? Again, it comes back to balance. We're talking about balance and imbalance. God's economy, as portrayed in the theocracy of Israel, possessed both systems of allocation. Laws pertaining to property ownership were established and enforced, Giving was expected from the ones who loved the Lord, which implied ownership. can't give if you don't own. And yet, in the year of Jubilee, returned property back to the original owners. Welfare was commanded in the law as evidenced in the practice of gleaning, but laziness was allowed to run its course without a safety net. Not an excuse to be lazy. Called to work. Because giving was a personal endeavor... The lazy could be differentiated from the truly needy, which is an impossibility under a one-size-fits-all government welfare program where you never really know who's, who's in need, true need. God's approach to managing a national economy was balanced, both ownership, kind of a blend between socialism and capitalism. One would think that an economic system from God would solve the problems of wealth acquisition and distribution, but Israel slipped time and time again into imbalance. The problem was not with the system, but with the hearts of those in the system. In some respect, John Kenneth Galbraith got it right in his famous statement, under capitalism, man exploits man. Under communism, it's just the opposite. 
Economic principles are only as viable as the moral character of the participants. No system works unless it is adhered to by the majority of the participants, and even then it must be reinforced with an adequate legal system. It behooves the individual believer to restore a redemptive basis as well. The balance may never be restored on a macroeconomic level, widespread, um, since the chances of the church affecting the global business cycle system seems rather remote. But it is certainly possible to live in such a way that believers demonstrate a balanced walk. In Ephesians 4.1, Paul exhorts the believers to walk worthy, using a word that originally meant balanced in the classic Greek. Christ-likeness will result in balance, since he was perfectly balanced in his approach to all things. The balance will demonstrate itself in a proper approach to working, to saving, and to giving. Work will not be an end, will not be an end in itself, robbing the believer of time in the church and home. Saving will not be an end in itself, resulting in hoarding and an attendant false sense of security. Giving will not be an end in itself with household neglect and religious pride. God's God's child will learn to balance, will learn to balance the enjoyment of the Father's creation with a sense of self-sacrifice. The mature believer is growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. 2 Peter 3.18 Who is perfectly balanced in all of his facets, the believer should be balanced because each of the three activities is ordained by God and to neglect any one of the three is an affront to his created order. The responsibility of stewardship. We talked about the origin of economics and the economics of redemption. Let's touch on the responsibility of stewardship. The often used word describing a believer's relationship to wealth is stewardship. It's not a bad choice. A steward is one who acts as a supervisor or administrator. as of finances and property for administrator, as, a, as over finances or property for, for someone else. The underlying issue in this concept is ownership. The steward does not own property. The steward manages property for a rightful owner. The lack of ownership limits the steward's freedom. For example, a museum, museum curator does not own the impressive painting on display. The painting cannot be taken from the museum and placed in the curator's home. The point is, the steward is responsible for the use of the property in the manner and the time designated by the owner, and to do otherwise would be a violation of his property rights. So the psalmist declares, the earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Paul, when addressing the Athenian audience, said that God made the world and everything in it. And he himself, God, gives to all mankind life, breath, and everything. Actually, the earth has always belonged to God by the right of creation, and stewardship has been the role of mankind since the beginning. Genesis 1.28. Stewardship was marred by the fall. However, However, in mankind, mankind began to see 
the meaning, the material world as existing for human purposes rather than viewing creation as from God, for God, and to God. A person may counter with, I made this money with my own time, energy, and expertise. The question remains, what is the source of one's time, energy, and expertise? How do individuals find themselves in the right place at the right time, allowing market forces to produce wealth? Well, Moses told the nation of Israel, you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. Ultimately, all wealth comes from God. Redemption, that is the reversing of the effects of the fall, is temporarily, it's temporarily expressed by the believer in subduing the created world in all of its facets to the sole purpose of God's glory. The problem lies with the preoccupation with the temporal over and the, to the neglect of the eternal. That is putting man's desires ahead of God's. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will a prophet for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his life? Or what shall a man gain in return for his life? Right? Matthew sixteen twenty four. Putting the eternal above the temporal, putting God's purpose in front of our own desires. One divine byproduct of having a heart focused on the eternal is the spirit of contentment. When the believer is concentrating on the eternal purposes of God, the hand of God is not only seen as paramount in circumstances, but slight momentarily affliction, affliction pale in the light of an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. That's 2 Corinthians 4.17. The Apostle Paul testified, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to I know how to be brought low, and I know how to how to and I know how to abound. In every in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret in facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul also wrote to to the wealthy. He wrote about wealth to Timothy, who was serving as a pastor in the church of Ephesus. Ephesus was a city known to prize wealth, sports, entertainment. It's kind of a mini precursor to the current American culture. Apparently, some Ephesians were embracing Christianity because they believed it was a path to riches. Sounds like the health and welfare gospel, the prosperity gospel. Paul said these things, said to the people that imagine that godliness is a means of gain. Paul employs uh, an intriguing thought process when it comes to counter that false idea in verse 6. And there is a great gain in accordance with, with contentment. So now there is great gain in godliness with contentment. Meaning that it's not Wealth plus God equals contentment. It's God plus contentment equals wealth. Although it, wealth didn't wasn't wasn't meant riches or money and wealth, but but wealth. Sometimes individual Christians and churches will fail to live 
within their incomes. In many circumstances, a debt is, the debt is a mere symptom, and the root cause being the lack of contentment. Contentment comes when the believer is resting in the sovereignty of God and is being controlled by his spirit. A spirit of discontent dictates an unending need for more, which is satisfied with more borrowing. When believers are content, they accept God's hand in their standard of living. One role of advertising in the world is to keep the population in a perpetual state of discontentment. We see it all over. The world, living for the present, will desire newer, shiny, shinier, bigger, bigger, better, more convenient, faster, more enjoyable, more luxurious, and tastier. God offers his children the opportunity to step off that treadmill and rest in him. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God what is good and acceptable and perfect. Romans 12.2 Contentment's primary source is found in having God's perspective on wealth. Knowing what God prizes, as expressed in his word, is a tremendous encouragement to his children as they find themselves in the world, but not of the world. According to the Bible, a number of things are greater value than gold, material riches, and those Include the souls of people, righteousness, wisdom, and understanding. A good name, the law of the Lord, integrity, an excellent wife, children, knowing Christ, knowing God. All things that scripture calls out as being uh, more important than gold. The world sees material wealth as a source of happiness, an end in itself. It is little wonder why so many people are driven to accumulate wealth since they perceive it to be the primary source of happiness in a finite existence. God sees material wealth as a means of advancing his purposes. And on many occasions, the lack of material wealth may give rise and even deepen the qualities that matter most. Some of God's people may possess wealth while others may not. In either case, a spirit of contentment delivers God's people from a preoccupation with wealth. The believer then accepts those amounts given by a loving and wise father as sign of his leading. This attitude is wonderfully reflected in the prayer of Augur, Proverbs 37 through 9. Two things I asked of you, deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me my falsehood of lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Two extremes. So what have we learned today regarding economics? That when the world fell into sin, abundance was supplanted by scarcity, Cooperation was replaced by competition, and balance was overtaken by imbalance. God has revealed his remedy for this part of sin's material results. That is, overcoming scarcity. How? Through work, through savings, through giving. Cooperating with God's ordained structure. And balancing otherwise extreme positions. 
socialism, communism, capitalism. Economics is temporal and only exists between the historical bookends of God's perfect environment. That is, the Garden of Eden and the new heavens and the new earth. Believers have a powerful indicator of the heart's affection, and that is their attitude towards wealth. We are all called by Scripture to be wise in dealing with the resources that the Lord has provided to us, including wealth, but it is only through a proper, proper biblical worldview that is knowing God's word and applying it in these areas of our lives that this can be achieved. And now we must apply these truths in our everyday life, and the choices that we make regarding wealth and stewardship and economics. I hope, uh, I hope this time was, was educational and um, it's a little different take on, on economics, um, but what's important is resting in the sufficiency of the Lord and uh, having a proper context and understanding of, of economics and, and wealth in general. So... Uh, with that, I'm going to go ahead and, and close in prayer. Holy Father, we pray that uh, everyone in this room is encouraged by your word, uh, proper reflection on, on wealth and economics, but really, Lord, on, on the eternal versus the temporal, that is, putting your desire, your calling uh, ahead of, of uh, the temporal, the things that will pass away in this world that may seem important at times but are fleeting. I pray that everyone here would strive to honor you and their roles, to cooperate with your, your order as, as uh, children of God. Uh, we pray that you would be glorified uh, as, as, as these uh, men and women employ the uh, scripture that we've read here today uh, in their lives. And straight pray for their strength and encouragement and pray that, uh, that it, you would be glorified uh, at the same time. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.